Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1003. Hebrews 4. We're going to start today by reading verses 11 through 13 of Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, follow along as I read verses 11 through 13. This is the word of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. May God give us ears to hear his word. Nearly everyone recognizes that American politics, that American political discourse has become incredibly aggressive, antagonistic, combative in recent years. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? The last couple of decades, and especially in the last, say, five years or so, people on every point of the political spectrum, they speak of one another and oftentimes act toward one another in ways that we ought to reserve for deadly enemies. If you doubt this, just take any one of the major news outlets and listen to maybe five minutes of them describing people that hold views or movements that they disagree with. You'll hear constant name-calling, ridiculous comparisons, wild hyperbole, misrepresentations, downright deception. And the clear message is that if this people, if this movement, if they get control, it will be the end of civilization as we know it. And again, I'm not talking about any political view or position or news channel. This is practiced by virtually everybody in America today. Now, what in the world happened? I mean, Americans have disagreed about politics before, We've disagreed for centuries, but 50 years ago, if somebody disagreed with you over masks, you would not describe them as the great Satan. So what in the world happened? Well, one theory that's increasingly making sense is that we have made politics our national religion. We have made politics our national religion. With the decline of traditional Christianity in our country, we've replaced that with political discourse, political debates. And when that happens, we shouldn't be surprised at all when people speak of one another and feel toward one another in apocalyptic categories. Writing in The Atlantic, commentator Shadi Hamid says this. I found this insightful. If secularists hoped that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics drained of faith's inflaming passions, they're likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, Ideological intensity and fragmentation have arisen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken, over, taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. I don't know about you, but that really makes sense to me. And I'd encourage you to keep this in mind whenever you think about or engage in the political process. Obviously, it is good and wise for Christians to be involved in American politics. I actually think this is part of our Christian duty. It's a way we love our neighbor. 
However, if you ever allow American politics to become ultimate, if you allow it to replace God, if you make politics your idol, it will quickly destroy you, and you will become as zealous and fanatical as any suicidal jihadist. How do you know if you've made politics your religion? Well, you've got to ask yourself some serious questions. Do I spend far more time, say, reading political blogs, checking the news, watching my favorite channel, than I do reading, say, the Bible or Christian literature? Do I get noticeably more impassioned, moved at, say, a political rally or the speech of my favorite politician than I do in Christian worship? Do I really believe deep down that the hope of our nation, that the hope of my friends, family, coworkers, is my favorite candidate, my favorite party? or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really ask yourself, have you replaced Christianity with politics? Well, motivating so much of this political zealotry, underlying so much of this political zealotry, what it is, it's a quest for power. A quest for power. And Christians, this is where in past generations, we believed that the power was in God. And we would take advantage of that power, access that power through things like the word of God, prayer, However, things again have changed, and when we've replaced God with politics, we think that the power lies in the political process, getting my candidate in office, getting these laws passed. Again, I'm not at all condemning politics as a essential. It is essential, but it's not God. And again, woe unto us if we replace God with politics. Now, into a context like this, it's essential that we remind ourselves where the true power lies. In this world obsessed with power and turning to all sorts of strategies and mechanisms to get power, where is power really found? Power to change lives, power to change cultures, power to change the world. Well, I'm going to tell you something this morning that you might find a little surprising. The power to change the world is not found in secular politics of either the left or the right. Nor is it found in money, or in stardom, or in military might, or in social media, or in big business. Again, the power is in God and in God alone. And were we to consult God regarding his power, we'd discover something kind of unusual. What we wouldn't expect. We would discover that when it comes to God, he most frequently exercises his power through words. Through words, through the simple speaking of sounds from his mouth. That is the most powerful force God uses in our world. And realize that's not merely true for the past. That's not just Bible times. That's true today. Today, God continues to do his most amazing, life-changing, culture-changing works through the word. And he shares that power with people as we too speak his words to others. Well, it's with this that we come to our final installment of Vision Sermons. To begin this new year, 2022, we've dedicated several special sermons to some very foundational convictions. Foundational convictions that I hope are part of the DNA of our church. To remind you of where we've been, we first considered personal Bible reading. That was on the first Sunday of the year. Personal Bible reading, I really believe, is the heartbeat of a healthy Christian life. You simply cannot have a joy-filled, bad habit-fighting, spiritually fruitful, evangelistically effective Christian life if you won't read your Bible. That was the topic of the first Sunday of the year. Then we spent two sermons talking about family discipleship. And you remember what that is? It's the, this entire idea that the family, the Christian family, ought to be the first place where children hear the gospel and learn the word of God. If a Christian child is asked, where did you learn about Jesus? Where did you learn the Bible? Their first answer ought not to be from VBS or Sunday school, though those are certainly helpful, but from mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. 
And considering why and how we do that was the burden of those two sermons. And then most recently, we considered the mission of the church. Why is the church here? What does God want the church to be doing? We've only got so much time, so many resources, so much money. What ought we to devote the majority of that to accomplishing? And I argued in two sermons that the mission of the church is to make disciples. To make disciples. Not primarily humanitarian work, not primarily politics, not primarily saving the environment, but going out into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word of God, inviting people to respond in repentance and faith, helping those folks organize themselves into churches, and then continuing that process over and over again until Jesus comes again. That's the mission of the church. And I'd encourage you, if you weren't here for some of these sermons, I'd, again, really recommend listening or watching them. They're all available on Sermon Audio. I believe the health of our church is largely determined on as many of us as possible being on the same page with these foundational convictions. Well, to conclude this series, like I said, I want to talk about the power of the Word of God. And you think about it, but it's our belief in the power of the Word of God that unites all of these vision sermons. Why do we read the Bible on our own? Because that's where the power is, to grow, to change, to become more like Jesus. Why do we share the Bible with our children? Because, again, that's where the power is found, that they might be saved and transformed. And why do we go into all the world and proclaim the Word of God? Because, again, that's where the power is found, to change cultures, to change nations. It really all comes back to our belief in the power of the Word of God. So to begin our thinking here, let's talk first about the significance of the power of God's Word. That's my first point, the significance of the power of God's Word. Now, were we to ask your typical American Christian, what's the most important thing to believe about the Bible? What do you think they'd say? Don't say anything out loud. Maybe just ask yourself this question. What's the most important thing to believe about the Bible? I tend to think that if you ask your typical American Christian, they'd probably say the Bible is without error, what's called inerrancy. The Bible contains no mistakes, no contradictions, no errors whatsoever. That's what they think is the most important thing about the Bible. Now, I'm going to try to persuade you in this point that that answer, while totally true, is nonetheless insufficient. It's totally true that the Bible is without error. I think down to every jot and tittle, God's word is true and trustworthy. And yet, that is not enough. There must be more going on for the Bible to be the word of God. Why do I say that? Well, think through it this way. Merely not having errors does not make something the word of God. Merely not having errors does not make something the Word of God. You could imagine a phone book. And I know that some of you don't even know what phone books are. <laughs> phone books, I'm, I'm being serious. Phone books are these big fat things that used to include everybody's phone number in a particular area. Uh, they made great seat cushions when I was a little kid. You know, raise yourself up at the table. Uh, but you could imagine a phone book that's completely without error. It's got everybody's zip code right, name spelled properly. Merely being correct does not make that phone book the Word of God. Sure, all truth is God's truth, but not all truth is the Word of God. You see, there's a difference there. There must be something more going on than merely accuracy for God's Word to be God's Word. Additionally, merely being accurate and without error does not make anybody want to read your book. You know, let's imagine I've got this handbook on how to raise scorpions, and it's just truth through and through. There's no mistakes, no contradictions in it. If you have no interest in raising scorpions, you're not going to read a word of my book on raising scorpions. See what I'm saying? But the last reason why it's totally true but totally insufficient to say that the Bible is without error and that's the most important thing to know about the Bible is that I don't think this is what the Bible itself would claim about itself. If we were to ask the Bible, what's the most important thing to believe about you? I don't think it would say it's inerrancy. Well, again, I totally believe that's true. I think it would say power. 
power. That's the most important thing to believe about me. Now, to show you this, let me give you several verses talking about the power of the Word of God. And I'll, I'll only make a couple of thoughts on these. There are actually thousands of verses that speak to this. Uh, and if, if you want more, talk to me. But let me give you a few passages and make a few comments about the power of the Word of God. This idea begins back in Genesis 1. What was the vehicle that God used to create the entire universe? His Word. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. By simply speaking, God created stars and planets and water and earth and sky and wind. He created everything, the creeping things, man, woman. It was the power of his word. That original creation sort of sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. How does God do his most amazing works? Through his speech. Something important to realize is that the word of God was not merely the mechanism that God used to create the universe in the beginning. This world is continually held together by the word. Right now, somehow God is speaking this universe into existence. And were God to withdraw his word, the entire universe would fall apart at the seams. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now listen to this next phrase. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We could continue studying this theme by turning to Genesis 12. How did God uh, call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and eventually create the Hebrew people? By means of his word, Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Those words, those promises spoken to Abraham, they created the Hebrews. And those promises made to Abraham, they really unite the entirety of the Bible, hold the whole thing together. We could go to Exodus 20. How did God turn the Hebrews, kind of a wandering bunch of nomads, into the nation of Israel? Again, his word. He spoke the law. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We could look at Ezekiel 37, that famous dry bones passage. Remember that old song about the dry bones shaken and whatnot. What was it that God used to resurrect the dry bones and bring them together? The word spoken over them. We could go to Acts 2. How did God create the church? The preaching of the word. This theme comes up over and over and over again. God does his most amazing, powerful, mind-boggling works through his word. This is why Jesus says in John 6, 63, It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, why is this? Why do God's words contain so much power? Well, the reason for this is because in God's universe, his words are more than just sounds. Do you know that our words are mostly just sounds? Yes, no, up, down, they're just sounds. But in God's world, his words are powerful. They actually accomplish things. It's like we read here in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now here's something I want you to think about. I know I've had you do this before, but look at that Bible that's hopefully sitting on your lap. Realize that Bible, maybe even put your hand on the page, that Bible is made of the same substance as the force that made the universe. Just think about that. Let that sink in. The force that made the universe, it was not evolution, not the Big Bang, not lightning that struck stardust. It was the Word. And that very same Word is there on the pages of your Bible if you'll take advantage of it. 
And that's why your Bible can do absolutely amazing things in your life. Create spiritual life when it's not there. Grow your faith when it's not there. Enable you to persevere to the end. It's through the powerful word of God. Hank Sykebell writes this eloquently in his book on pastoral ministry. The book's of a pastoral ministry, but this quote's about the word of God, which is pretty good. He says, God's word is performative speech. Just as God first created something out of nothing by speaking words, so he continues to create new realities by the force of his sheer word. When you say the Lord bless you and keep you, you are not merely expressing an empty wish or fervent prayer. All the power of God's own name and word enacts that blessing by which he bestows his enlivening power. God's word always does what it says. When you comfort dying believers with the promises of God who raises the dead, they find hope and peace in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. When you employ scripture to sanctify and cleanse a woman who has been abused and defiled by another's sin, she is cleansed, renewed, and purified with a holiness not her own, wrapped in the purity and sanctity of Jesus himself. That's the power of God's word for you. Never, never just static information. The Bible is the tool and instrument of the Holy Spirit to do what it says, to accomplish what it speaks of, to deliver what it promises. No wonder, then, that Scripture is at the center of local church ministry. God's Word delivers the goods. So is the Bible without error? Absolutely. And, and please don't hear me at all criticizing that. No errors, no contradictions, no mistakes at all. And yet, I think that's insufficient. We've also got to emphasize that the Word of God is powerful. Almighty God himself is speaking to us through his word, and through the power of his word he does great and mighty things we cannot comprehend. Well, this leads us to ask the obvious question, what is God's word powerful to do? If the Bible's got the very power of God, Almighty God speaking through it, what is it powerful to accomplish? And under this heading, I've got four different answers for you. Four things God's word is powerful to do. First, God's word is powerful to save. Whatever else the Bible can do, it's powerful to save. You see, we're all born dead in sin, already alienated from God, already blinded by the devil, already on the devil's team, blinded by our sinful lusts, already headed to hell. We love darkness rather than light, and we could never do anything of ourselves to change our nature. So how then who, can those who are lost be saved? How then can those who are enslaved to the devil be freed? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like there was darkness and chaos at the original creation, but then God spoke, let there be light, so also in our souls, darkness, chaos, but then God speaks, let there be light, and all of a sudden Jesus becomes glorious and wonderful in the desire of our souls. I hope and pray you've experienced that. And the channel through which God does that enlightening work is the Word of God. This power to save is probably the power most frequently emphasized in the Bible. It comes up over and over and over again. 1 Peter 1.23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. James 1.18, He chose to give us birth through the Word of truth, so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, the implications and the applications of this idea are enormous, and I'd encourage you to discuss them further around the dinner table this afternoon and in your growth groups. But let me give you a couple of quick applications of this. If the power to spiritually resurrect the spiritually dead is in the word of God, what does that mean? 
Well, what this means in part is that our evangelism needs to include a lot of Bible. Our evangelism needs to include a lot of Bible. More important than moving testimonies, more important than, say, archaeological evidence or philosophical arguments for the existence of God, is the power of the Word of God. So say you're trying to share the gospel with a non-Christian friend, which I know many of you are trying to do, I hope all of you are trying to do. Don't spend all your time on sort of tough apologetical questions. Uh, you know, why is there suffering in the world? Uh, how, how can there be one God, you know, one God when there are all these religions? Uh, certainly those are important, but don't spend the majority of your time on those. Instead say, hey, why don't we read and discuss the Gospel of John together? Let's read through it slowly, talk about it, and then at the end of that, you'll be shocked how these other sort of tough questions kind of evaporate and, and aren't the burden that they once were. I think the reason for that is because it's the Bible and not so much our answers, our philosophy, or our archaeology that gives spiritual life. Similarly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for coming. You're always welcome to be with us. But if you're not a Christian, I'd give you the same basic counsel. Don't spend the majority of your time reading, say, philosophy or archaeology or Josephus, something like that. Though Certainly, those can be helpful. Instead, say, read the Gospel of John in a modern English translation and then ask yourself, is there any way this Jesus can be anything other than the Son of God? You might be, be surprised by what you find. I think what we're saying here also has enormous implications for parenting. If the Bible is where the real power is found to save, to transform, start teaching your children the Bible as early as possible. Have them start memorizing Scripture when they're old enough to speak. Read the Bible to them as they're going to bed and then pray like crazy that God will say, let there be light in their souls. That's the only way people can be saved. Now, one final thought. While every word of God is powerful and while every word of God can do great and mighty things, the power to save is especially found in the word of the gospel. It's like Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's the gospel, you ask? The gospel is this message that you were made to know God. God made you in his image to have a relationship with him. And it's out of that relationship with God that your life finds its meaning and significance. And yet the truth of the matter is we've sinned. We've lived the way we wanted to live regardless of how God designed it to be lived. Throughout life, we basically try to live as if there is no God, as if we're God, when in reality, he is a loving, heavenly father who delights to care for people. Now, because God is righteous, he will punish us for our sins. And unless we are forgiven, unless we're reconciled to our creator, we will suffer the eternal judgment our sins rightly deserve. But it was under those very circumstances that God, in his great love for us, he acted, he took the initiative to reconcile us to himself, to redeem us. He did that through providing a savior for all people, a savior who is his very own son. Jesus, he's fully God, and yet he takes on a real human body, just like yours and mine. He remains fully God while being fully man, and he grows up. He's a baby, toddler, young man, adult man. He goes through all of the same sorts of tribulations and trials we go through, and yet never sins. He always perfectly obeyed the word of God. But then, as I imagine you know, he then died a horrible death on the cross, nailed hand and foot to this cross of wood where he bleeds out and dies. And what the Bible teaches us is that on that cross, Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God the Father in our place. 
That's why he's dying. He's being punished for our sins as a substitute that God could then turn to us and forgive us. Three days later, God the Father raises Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you today is true. And now in response, Jesus is calling you. Turn from your sin, embrace me, be forgiven. Turn from your sin, embrace my death and resurrection, and hear God say over you, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. You have the gift of eternal life. You see, in God's universe, God's words are not just sounds. They actually accomplish things. And this is nowhere more important than in the word of the gospel. And if you'll hear the word of the gospel today, if you'll believe the word of the gospel today, God will give you new life. Not only abundant life in this life, but eternal life. Reconciliation to your creator and life in heaven forever. So I beg you, trust Jesus today. Trust him today. If you've never put your hope in the Lord Jesus, do it now. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus today. Embrace his loving leadership and be reconciled to your creator. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss this further, would like clarification on something that I've said, would like to pray with me, pray, pray, me pray for you, something like that, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. Believe the word of the gospel today and today be made right with God. Now one final thought on this point. I'd encourage you to read church history for tons of amazing illustrations of God's word being powerful to save. These are so encouraging, so refreshing. Church history filled with fascinating examples of God's word, often working in the most unexpected ways to give people life. Uh, I've read about people that are, you know, drunk and planning on killing themselves, and they're in a hotel room, and they pull out the Gideon Bible, and all of a sudden everything changes, and their life is turned upside down. Uh, People that, you know, they, they hear Spurgeon preaching. There's this fascinating story. This guy's working on the acoustics in this building, and they hear, he's like in the background, and they hear Spurgeon preaching, and God awakens them, and they're converted right then and there. Uh, there's another story I was thinking about telling you about a guy who's converted in the middle of his own sermon. He's a, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. I sent this out in the e-newsletter a couple of years ago, but there was a time when preachers actually made more money than the average person. And what that meant is that oftentimes you'd get unbelieving characters as preachers. Uh, And this guy named Elias Keach, he was preaching this sermon. And what you don't realize is that as you're preaching, you're actually thinking stuff at the same time. I didn't know this growing up, but preachers actually think things while they're preaching. You know, that guy's over there sleeping again, and that girl's obviously playing Facebook. You know, you're, you're thinking this stuff while you're preaching. Well, Elias Keach, he's preaching away. And halfway through his sermon, he's like, I don't actually believe this stuff. You, you know, you, know you, you can make a good show and pretend you believe things when you don't actually believe them. But, but right in the middle of his sermon, he's cut to the heart, realizes, I don't actually believe this stuff. That convicted him and overwhelmed him, and he was con- converted by his own sermon, which is kind of amazing. But the story I wanted to share with you is a guy who was converted through using the pages of a Gideon Bible to roll marijuana cigarettes. Uh, Now, I've never done this myself, praise God, but apparently the pages of your little Gideon Bible are are like the perfect size and the perfect weight for rolling marijuana cigarettes. And there's this, this is a true story, and I can actually connect you with this pastor if you want the verification for this. But he's in Zambia using the pages of his Gideon Bible to roll marijuana cigarettes, and he rips one out, and it happens to be in the Psalms. Now, that's not the place you'd expect God to use to bring somebody to faith, but it was. He rips it out, and I think it was Psalm 46, if I remember correctly, and all of a sudden, the thought just grips him. You know, maybe there is a God that I need to know. 
Maybe I have offended this God. Maybe using the pages of his Bible to roll marijuana cigarettes is offensive to him. One thing led to another. He was converted, and now he's a pastor in Zambia. God's word can do amazing things. And if you want, if you want just countless stories of this, again, read some good church history. It's so refreshing and encouraging to your soul. And what it is, all it is, is an illustration of what I'm telling you, that God's word has power to save souls. Let me give you another thing that God's word is powerful to do. And just to clarify, these next three will be considerably shorter than the first one. But second, God's word is powerful to transform. Powerful to transform. Not only does God save through the power of his word, but he changes people through the power of his word. Listen to Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. You see, once you're converted by God's grace, once your eyes are open and you embrace Jesus, then this lifelong process of transformation begins. A gradual, slow, but progressive transformation into the image of Jesus. And the means that God uses to make you more like his son is primarily his word. This is why Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now here's a question I want you to think about. Does anybody here want to change? Does anybody want to grow? Does anybody say have bad habits that you want to quit, good habits that you want to cultivate? Would anybody here benefit from becoming more loving, more patient, more bold, more courageous? Would anybody's family benefit from everybody becoming more kind, selfless, and sacrificial? Of course. Of course, but what you need to realize is that the power to change, the power to grow, that's not found within yourself. You're not going to get it done through sheer willpower. And it's certainly not going to be found on your phone. It's not found in Netflix or Facebook, MSN. BC, Fox News. It's, it's not found in your favorite movies or TV shows. It's found in one place, the Bible. That's how God continues to bring order out of chaos today. If you understand that, what that means is that growing, changing, becoming the people that we were meant to be is inseparable from a serious engagement with God's Word. A serious reading of, study of, comprehension of, application of the Word of God to your life. I mean things like daily Bible reading, small group Bible studies, listening to good sermons, reading good Christian books about the Bible. That is the bread and butter of transformation. For God's word is powerful to transform. Quickly, a third thing the Bible is powerful to do. Powerful to build Jesus' church. God's word is powerful to build Jesus' church. Now, one of the things I find fascinating about the book of Acts is that it never talks about church growth. Church growth, as much as we use that term today, it's not found in the Bible, and particularly not in Acts. Instead, do you want to know what phrase the book of Acts uses for the uh, church growing, for lack of a better term? The book of Acts uses the term, the word of God spread. Acts 6, 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 49, the word of God, pardon me, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You see, the spreading of the word is the growth of the church. 
They're connected such in Scripture that they're basically synonymous. For the church to grow is for the word to spread, and as the word spreads, the church grows. But truth be told, you'd never get that impression from a lot of churches in America today. You go to a lot of churches in America today, and I have seen this, and it's honestly disgusting. But the Bible is almost like an endangered species. I might preach a sermon sometime on Bible-less Christianity because I've seen this, and it's, it's again, disgusting. Churches that have spectacular musicians, amazing facilities, immaculate bathrooms. Uh, they might have multi-million dollar budgets and laser light shows and programs for every age group conceivable. But when it comes to the actual teaching and preaching of the Bible, it's virtually non-existent. Uh, they take a fundamentally secular program and then they just sprinkle a couple of Bible verses on it and call it church. And realize I am not talking about those liberal churches out there that deny the Bible is the word of God or deny that Jesus is God. Obviously, they exist, and that's a shame. I'm talking about conservative churches that might affirm in their doctrinal statement that the Bible is the word of God and that the Bible is without error. They might profess to believe that, but their behavior denies that deep down they actually believe that. So in the way that they do church, they spend the vast majority of their time talking about, say, self-help topics, or how to engage in politics, or how to lose weight, or how to save the environment. The actual content of the Bible gets about as much attention as, say, my attic. What is that other than a confession of disbelief in the power of the Bible? What is that other than admitting we really don't believe that the Bible has the power to save souls and to change our world? The Bible, sure, it might be great, but it's this little wilted, weak flower that needs to be supplemented with everything else, with laser light shows and pipe organs and, and multi-million dollar whatever. At the end of the day, I really believe that there are basically two types of Christians. Two types. Those who believe the Bible is powerful and those who don't. It really comes down to that. Those who believe the Bible is powerful and those who don't. And this is essentially totally disconnected from a doctrinal statement. In churches that don't believe the power, of the, word of, in the power of the Word of God, the emphasis will always be on something else. The main meal will be something other than the Bible. It might be the entertainment, might be the smoke machine, might be the praise band, might be the stained glass windows, might be the pipe organ, might be the eloquence of the preacher. But when people think, why do I go to that church, being fed by God's Word will not be number one on the list, and it might not even be number ten on the list. But then there are those churches that believe in the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, and, and they'll emphasize Bible studies and sermons. They'll emphasize uh, reading God's Word, singing God's Word, displaying God's Word in the Lord's Supper. These churches, they probably won't draw the massive crowds that the other type of church draw, but God will be at work through His powerful Word. God's church will be built and the mission will be advanced. And then you think about it, on that final day when we all stand before the judgment throne of Jesus, what do you think will happen to those churches that really didn't believe in the power of the Word of God? All their beautiful bathrooms and light fixtures and everything, it will be just wood, hay, and stubble, blown away like dust. Well, those churches that did believe in the power of the Word of God, they will receive a joyful welcome into God's eternal kingdom. One more thought on all of this. If God's word is powerful to build his church, this has enormous implications for what pastors are to be and do. For what pastors are to be and do. Instead of, say, life coaches, or fundraisers, or therapists, or community organizers, or CEOs, 
Pastors are ministers of the word. Preaching the word, teaching the word, comforting with the word, counseling with the word, leading by the word. That and that alone is the unique role of the pastor. Old John Calvin said it well when he wrote, Let pastors boldly dare all things by the word of God. Let them constrain all the power, glory, and excellence of the world to give place to and obey the divine majesty of this word. Let them enjoin everyone by it from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the word of God. We're almost done, but one more thing that the word of God is powerful to do. And again, these four are not the only four found in the Bible. There are many. I I could preach a sermon series on this topic if I wanted to. But one more thing that God's word is powerful to do, and that's to preserve our faith. God's word is powerful to preserve our faith. Now, professing Christians abandoning the gospel, that is not a new thing. This has been going on since Bible times. Paul talks about those who have shipwrecked the faith. Obviously, Jesus, among his 12 disciples, he had Judas the traitor. So this is not a new phenomenon. That being said, we are living at a time when the cultural pressure to renounce Christianity is enormous and only increasing. You watch TV, Christianity is constantly mocked. Uh, Christians are portrayed as bigots in the news. Ancient Christian doctrines are considered hate speech nowadays. Because of that, we shouldn't be surprised at all that the percentage of professing Christians abandoning Christianity is increasing rapidly. In recent years, we've seen several prominent One-time pastors totally apostatize and abandon Christianity. Some of you know who I'm talking about. While I'm no prophet, I'm fairly persuaded that such patterns will continue and increase. And I I hate to say this, but I fear that maybe some in this very room, five years from now, ten years from now, will deny that they were ever Christians in the first place. And in a context like this, where the pressure to deny Jesus is enormous, the pressure to conform to this world is enormous, you wonder, where am I going to get the strength to persevere? How will I keep going in the face of harassment, mockery, loss of job, maybe physical violence? What will keep me following Jesus? And and this is where I'll say again, it will not come from your sheer willpower. You think I'm just going to like white knuckle this, you will fall. It certainly won't come from more time on your smartphone, more time on Facebook, Wheel of Fortune, Marvel movies. The power to persevere is going to be found in one place, the Word of God. And in the years to come, abiding in the Word of God, that's the only way that you'll not turn and deny your Savior. This emphasis on the Bible as the preserving agent of our faith, it comes up again and again and again in Scripture. It's found all over the place, but especially in Psalm 119, a psalm that you know that I dearly love. Let me read you a few verses from Psalm 119 and listen for this emphasis on the preserving power of our faith in the Word of God. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Almost sounds like today. Verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and not be put to shame, for I delight in your commandments, which I love. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your word. This this emphasis, it also interestingly comes up again in Revelation, 
which at the same time shouldn't surprise us very much because Revelation's got a lot of persecution in it. But consider these verses from Revelation and the way in which the word preserves our faith. Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 12.10. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love their lives not even unto death. From these verses from Psalm 119, from Revelation, did you catch this emphasis on the word of God's preserving power? To make this practical, this is what I'd encourage you to imagine. If over the next, say, 10 years, you spend a few hours a day watching TV, a few hours surfing the internet, maybe watch a couple of movies on the weekends, and spend minimal time with the Bible, don't be surprised at all if in 10 years from now you don't even think you were ever a Christian in the first place. But if over the next, say, 10 years, you turn off your smartphone from time to time, you, you turn off the TV from time to time, you shut your computer, and, and even something like 10, 15 minutes a day, you spend some time prayerfully reflecting on God's word, I think that in a decade from now, your faith, while certainly tried and tempted and afflicted, will still be there and still be burning bright. You'll still continue to confess Jesus despite the pain and the persecution, but that's only because the Bible has the power to preserve our faith. So this, then, is what the Bible is powerful to do, to save souls, to transform those souls into the image of Jesus, to advance the mission of the church, which is to make disciples of all the earth, and to preserve our faith in this present evil age. If the Bible has such amazing power, why on earth would we neglect it? And I'm speaking to myself as well, because I get just as caught up in movies, TV, as you do. But why on earth would we let it gather dust on our shelves when the power to change the world, to change ourselves, is, is right here in front of us? We should praise God for such a priceless gift, but shame on us if we neglect the Bible. Now, to conclude our time this morning, I want to tell you a story I know I've told you before. If you've heard it before, humor me. But it's the story of a depressed, foolish, sad young man, young man who was not popular, did not make friends easily, did not do well in sports, did even worse in school. This young man was enslaved to a variety of shameful sins. But something happened to that young man. Christians loved him and spoke the word of God to him. Christians loved him and spoke powerful Bible truth into his life. It began when he was a very young child, parents imbibed in him a treasuring of the word of God. Sunday school teachers spoke to him the truth of the gospel, the truth about Jesus. He was born again. He believed the gospel and his life was changed. But it didn't end there. Over the years, God brought dozens and dozens of other Christians into his life to speak God's word to him. Youth pastors, roommates, friends, uh, fellow church members, pastors, teachers, even casual acquaintances who didn't realize they were performing this ministry. They spoke God's powerful words to him in love. Sometimes it hurt. Sometimes they called him to repent. Sometimes it was embarrassing to have to deal with his own sins, but they spoke the word of God nonetheless. And over time, his life was totally transformed. And that once depressed, discouraged, foolish young man eventually became a joyful, confident Christian, a husband, father, pastor, Navy, Navy Reserve chaplain, Know what I'm talking about? 
I'm sure something similar could be said of many in this room. Somebody loved you enough to speak the life-giving word to you. Somebody loved you and spoke to you the word of God and your life was changed and you're forever grateful. But the question I conclude this entire series with is this. Will you love others to speak God's word into their lives? Again, somebody loved you enough and they got over whatever awkwardness, whatever weirdness there was to speak the living God to you. And, and hopefully, if you're a believer, your life is changed and you're eternally grateful. But will you love others, your friends, your neighbors, your children, your brothers and sisters in Jesus? Will you love them enough to speak God's powerful words into their lives? These words that have the power to transform them forever for their good and the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. What a gift. Lord, how foolish we are to neglect it. Uh, how foolish to value so many things more than it. Forgive us of that for Jesus' sake. Lord, work in all of our hearts that, like David, we would say your word is more precious than gold or silver, sweeter than honey. Give us such a delight in your word. Lord, as that takes place, use your word to transform us, to preserve us, to build your church and use us that sinners might be saved. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.